We are uh, embarking on a new series. We've wrapped up our study in the book of Philippians. And we're going to take a few short weeks, about four weeks, to look at our mission and vision statement. It was uh, presented to you at the last congregational meeting in June. And uh, I, I told you at that time that I would be taking a little more intentional time to go through, uh, particularly our mission statement. Um, so with that, I wanted to tell you what it is and why we have it. I think sometimes, you know, you can ask the question, is it, is it a useful endeavor to, to formulate a mission and vision statement? Um, I, I would just say this, I think it helps focus us as a church on who we are and where we're headed. And so the encouragement to us is that we would bond together in this common goal, common vision. And, and one thing I wanna tell you is that it's not novel. What I'm about to share, if you haven't heard it, uh, is not novel. In fact, you could apply it to just about any church, uh, gospel preaching church in any place. I hope, I hope, that, I hope it's not novel. Um, uh, that would be, to me, a problem. What it is, though it's not novel, it rings true for all churches in all places and all times. Nevertheless, there is some specificity to it, right? It is about us as a church. Who is CCPC? Who is Christ Community Presbyterian Church? And where are we going in this place with these people together uh, at this time? So it has certain characteristics and helps us clarify where we're headed. Sort of goalpost setting, if you will. So first is the vision, and I'll just share the vision with you. And then we're going to look at the mission statement. And we're going to just take one piece of the mission statement today, the very first piece of the mission statement. But the vision, the overall vision, what, first of all, what is this? This is, can seem a little bit corporate ease, vision, mission, statement. And if that is uncommon information to you, uh, the vision is simply the goalposts. It is what we want to be, who we want to be as a church. And now, obviously, Christ Community Presbyterian Church aims very, very much to to. To, to, to look more and more like Jesus, right? We aim to worship Jesus. These are all things we could say, but we clarified these things, who we want to be as a church. And this is the vision that this session, the elders came up with. Uh, Christ Community Presbyterian Church aims to be a Christ-exalting, biblically mature, diverse expression of the people of God who humbly love and serve and compassionately share the good news in this community and around the world. That's very noble, high-minded. Um, and you might say, well, that's great to set such lofty goals, but what are the chances of getting there? And I would say, in glory, right? Uh, in glory. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't aim for that in this time and place while God has us here on earth. We aim for that. So how do we move towards that goal? Well, that's where the mission statement comes in. That's the, the sort of, this is, this is how we move towards that goalpost, though we don't necessarily reach it fully in this life. But this is the mission statement. It's Christ Community Presbyterian Church exalts Christ through joyfully reverent worship. We grow in Christ through Holy Spirit dependent faith, hope, and love. And we humbly share Christ through word and deed in our community and throughout the world. 
I'm going to say it again, okay? And then I'll summarize it in even a, a shorter nugget that we can kind of put into our minds as a memory. But Christ Community Presbyterian Church exists, right, to exalt Christ through joyfully reverent worship. We grow in Christ through Holy Spirit-dependent faith, hope, and love, and we humbly share Christ through word and deed in our community and throughout the world. Now, that's our mission, and we could say it in a nutshell. We exalt Christ, we grow in Christ, we share Christ. That should be what we do. That's who we are. And we want to look at these in specific. And this week, we're going to just take that first one this, this afternoon. We're just going to take the first one, and that is exalting Christ through joyfully reverent worship. And we're going to do this by looking at the... the um, the lens, or through the lens of Revelation chapter 5. Now, I, I'm fully aware that to dive into a book like Revelation is, you know, where angels dread to go, right? They, they fear to go. This is um, uh, difficult stuff. When you enter into the book of Revelation, you're, you're going back in time, and then you're also entering a, a genre of apocalyptic literature that we don't have in our own society. So we have to do all sorts of challenging work to understand it. Nevertheless, I'm going, to, I'm going to attempt that. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5, and we're going to uh, look at this p- particularly with the eye to what does it mean as a church to exalt Christ, as that being a core identity of ours. So with that, let me turn to God's word. We'll look at Revelation chapter 5 this afternoon. In the coming weeks, we'll look at those other points, but for now. Revelation chapter 5. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within it, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll, or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. May God bless the reading of his word, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. And we come before the exalted Christ, your Son, our Lord and Savior. And we ask that you would help us to exalt him, to sing his name, to bless his name, to rejoice in him, to rest in him, to worship him. Help us as we study this passage today to be a church that exalts Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. I'm going to jump right into the text um, without any lengthy introduction. Usually you have a little vignette or story or question or something, but we're just going to jump right in. There's three things that I want to look at today with this, with this aim that we would exalt Christ. That's our, that's our goal as a church. And I want to look at it in three parts. Two of those are going to be sort of focused in on the text. First is exalt Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah. I want to look at that idea, that concept that here is the lion. Exalt the lion. And then the second point is exalt the lamb. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth, who shed his blood for us. Exalt the lamb. And then finally, I want to think about what it means for us as a church to exalt Jesus, to exalt Christ. What does it look like for us to be a Christ-exalting church in some specifics? We won't go into every detail at all about how we do that. I think we will work that out over time in the life of our church, and we have been doing that over the course of the time that this church has, has existed. And so, uh, but that's our, that's our aim. We'll, we'll look at it in a little bit more specifics about what it looks like for us as a church to be Christ exalting. So first, exalt Christ the lion. Now, the, as I've already mentioned, it's a challenge to jump into the book of Revelation. And there's many reasons for this, but one of them is uh, Revelation is complex in its structure. So if you've ever studied the book of Revelation, you'll know that there are many interpretations of the book of Revelation. And on top of that, in that, that how it, the book is structured matters. I'm not going to go into those details, but it's complex. And so we're kind of entering into uh, a little bit of a challenging text here. Second, I've already mentioned, is that it's rich in ancient symbolic imagery of a foreign nature. When we read words like, there stood the lamb who was slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits that go out into the, to the earth. And, you know, you, you get a sense of, I don't understand what this, I don't, under, I don't get what's going on here. Um, so there's complexity because we're, we don't live in this day and age. And therefore, as we look at the text, I just want to say, I'm going to major on the majors. And there might be questions that you have that you get stuck on. You'd be like, well, I really want to know what this means. I would encourage you to talk to me afterward, and I'll probably not have an answer for you. 
but we can talk about it. We can wrestle with God's word together and we can examine it. But I do think it's important that we set a little bit of context. John receives a vision which he shares with the church, a church that is being harassed, a church that is being persecuted, a church that is struggling to survive in a culture and a world that is hostile to it. And it's a small church. We know what that's like. eh? It's a small church scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And John, in this vision, is taking this letter and sending it to the churches. Why? For their encouragement. It's meant to remind these struggling Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire that God is sovereign that he is reigning and he is ruling and that he is the judge of all things, that he has a plan and it's going to come to fruition. And John's vision is meant as well to give us a glimpse into the very throne room of God. This is what John's vision is. He, like Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, is brought into a vision of the throne room of the living God. It starts in chapter 4, this vision, And it continues on into chapter 5 and beyond. But this glimpse that we have is this amazing picture of all these angelic hosts of varying types coming together and worshiping the living God. Casting down their crowns before him. Crying out to him. Crying these words we see in chapter 4 just previously. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. who was and is and is to come. And then a little bit later at the end of chapter 4, these same hosts in heaven say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. There's John. Can you imagine having that kind of a revelation of the throne room of God with all the heavenly creatures gathered around, the elders and the angels, And here, in the beginning of chapter 5, in the right hand of the eternal God, God the Father, in the hand of power that brings judgment. Whenever we see right hand of God, think power and judgment and authority and rule. Here in that hand is a scroll. It's a scroll. And on that scroll, it's written on the front and on the back, and it's all tied up, and there's seven seals on the scroll. Now, at the outset of this study, we've entered in already here in verse 1 of chapter 5 into the challenge. Immediately, we have questions that come to mind. What is this scroll? Why is it written front and back? What, what are these seven seals? What's going on here? I don't have time to address all these questions in great detail, but I think it's essential for us to understand the nature of the scroll, at least to an extent. Scrolls or books show up throughout Scripture and particularly in the book of Revelation. In fact, by the end of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 20, uh, we see this language of books or scrolls, and there's books that are being opened. And there's different books. There's these books that are being opened, and then there's this other book, this book of life that's being opened. And we see that language of book of life and elsewhere in Scripture. And, of course, that book of life is the life in which and the book in which all the names of God's people are written into. 
I don't think this is necessarily the book of life. I'm going to say necessarily because there may be a scholar out there who thinks it is, and I, I'm, I, I just gently tread in these waters. I don't think it's the book of life, though. I want to suggest to you that I think that this book, this scroll, is in fact God's plan for judgment and redemption. It's God's plan for judgment and redemption. And all it needs is an executor, somebody who's, for whom those seals are placed, saying this belongs to them to execute this, you might call, last will and testament. He is the one who can take it and go and execute this plan of judgment and redemption. Okay, why do I think that it's this executive order of the king, so to speak? Well, if we had time, we'd go back into the book of Daniel, we'd go back into the book of Ezekiel, we'd go back into the book of Isaiah, and we would see this kind of language of scrolls and very similar language to what we find here. And one of them, Ezekiel, you have this idea of the scroll being written to on front and back, and it has all of that, that idea of front and back, meaning it's complete. This is the complete plans, if you will. Um, and we would see that this primarily, the scrolls in the Old Testament, are about judgment. They're about God coming and bringing his judgment on the wicked. And here the problem is, so remember the context. Churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire facing persecution and injustice, right? Wondering, is God sovereign? Will he make things right? And, and here's this picture, this vision that the Apostle John receives that has a scroll that says, here's the plan. It's exciting. Justice is going to come down. It's going to reign and, and God's rule will be uh, established and God's people will be saved. And all of this written into this scroll. But there's a problem. The scroll is sealed, perfectly sealed, seven seals, right? And unless those seals are broken and the scroll opened, the plans of judgment and redemption will not be accomplished. And so a mighty angel says with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And I want to pause right there with that question because I think it's a fundamental question. I think it's a fundamental question. Who is worthy? And it's not just a fundamental question for this text to understand this apocalyptic vision. It's not just a fundamental question for the Apostle John or for those first century Christians. I think it's a fundamental question for all people in all places at all times. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Who is able to judge and to redeem? Way back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sat before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and determined with the assistance of the father of lies, the serpent, that they themselves were worthy to judge heaven and earth, to know good and evil. They determined that they could be the arbiters of truth, good, of evil. And I would argue this is the problem that all of us have. 
And, and, and there's a fundamental reality to human nature, two, two truths that aren't necessarily bad, they just are, in many ways, good. One is we want justice, right? I think all of us have some hunger, longing for justice. Now, we define that differently, whoever you are, but we all want some sort of justice. The other thing is we also want redemption. We want forgiveness, we, we, don't, we want justice out there, but we don't want justice right here. We want justice to injustices we see being done either to us or to people around us. But when it comes to us, we want forgiveness and redemption. Right? That's, that's the truth. We, we, I think all of us have. And they're natural desires, longings that are not in and of themselves bad. But where we go awry is thinking that we are the ones who can bring it about. In other words, that we are worthy. What's the problem with that? We're not. We're not. Not only do we not have the ability to justly judge, but that even if we were able to justly judge, we would find ourselves under the same condemnation and judgment that we were judging with. So even if we could rightly justly judge, we would realize very quickly that we are guilty. It's like in the courtroom, the accused standing up from behind the the table he's sitting at, approaching the bench, not to stand under the judgment of the judge, but then he goes up into the bench, onto the bench, and he takes the gavel and he kicks the judge out. That's what we do. It's, it's ludicrous. When the angel asked the question, who is worthy? When all the ends of heaven and earth were searched, there was no one found. No one was worthy to execute judgment and redemption. And what happens with John? Does he step forward to say, I can open the seals? What does he do? He weeps loudly. John is bereft. Why? Because he looks out on the world and he sees the desperate need for justice. And he looks at himself and he knows how unworthy he himself is. I am convinced of this as a people, as a human race, even as a church. We will not exalt Christ until we first understand that we are not worthy. We'll have no desire to exalt Christ until we understand that we, apart from grace, fall under the judgment of God. In our fallenness and our desire to be judges of heaven and earth, we look for things in the world that can help us execute our plans of judgment and redemption. So in our, in, our, in our folly, in our hubris, I would say, uh, we actually try to do, be judges and kings. Uh, maybe we believe judgment and redemption in our lives comes through different means. So for some of us, maybe we think if I accumulate wealth or I gain knowledge or I have political power, then I can execute justice, right? 
If I'm accomplished in this life, if I gain money, if I have wealth, then I can earn the right to judge. I earn my salvation and I can stand up and be the king. This is the way our hubris goes. Or if I become the most knowledgeable person in the world, if I am the smartest, if I'm the most, uh, have all the accolades of the academy, then I can earn the right to judge others and their lack of understanding and their lack of wisdom and their lack of knowledge. And I earn my salvation and I become judge. Or if I become the most powerful, the most influential, I can exert that power and influence. I earn the right to judge and to cast judgment and I earn my salvation. This is what we do in our folly. But at the end of the day, we examine our own hearts and lives. Friends, you and I are not worthy. We are like the accused overtaking the bench from the judge. It is the most foolish of all actions. And until we rightly recognize that we are not the arbiters of justice, but rather those who rightly deserve the charge condemned, we will not exalt Christ. The text tells us no one is found worthy in all of heaven and on earth to execute this judgment and redemption, except for one. One who has all authority in heaven and on earth The passage here describes him as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. As John is sitting there crying, he's weeping. One of the elders says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. So these two titles, lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, they have their Uh, exposition in the Old Testament. You have to go way back, all the way back to Genesis chapter 49 to see this uh, allusion to uh, the the line of the tribe of Judah. Jacob is on his deathbed and he's blessing his sons. He's giving them a blessing. And oftentimes, as the case in those ancient fathers, when they bless, they also spoke prophetically. And so as he's going through all the sons, He comes to Judah and he says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and he crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestitures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. That's the, that's the whole blessing to Judah. And maybe some of that is foreign to us as well. We could go into the details, but I won't. What I want us to just see simply is that the, the, the promise or the prophetic word is that Judah, meaning Judah's progeny, is going to come the scepter, the king, the ruler, the one who will judge and bring justice 
we could trace that line all the way throughout till we get to King David, right? King David was the king, the messianic king. There was a promise given to David, but if we go even past David and we get to the later kings, we come to Isaiah, and Isaiah says this in chapter 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And as we come to this section in Revelation, what, what John is seeing as these, as these elders and these angels, as they declare that here is the one who can open the scroll, that he is the lion, he is the root of Jesse, he is the king who comes to judge. It's none other than Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the heaven-sent king, under whom all things are subject. Friends, not one of us is worthy. And King Jesus opens the scroll. If we were to go forward in the next chapter of Revelation, it would reveal those judgments under each one of those seals. Jesus is the king, the lion. And this ought to bring two responses for us. First, rejoice and weep no more. Why? Because there will be justice in the world. Wickedness does not reign. Christ himself reigns over all things. That's the first response. But the second response ought to be this, repent. Cast yourself on the mercy of this king that you might not be swept up in that judgment. Rest in Jesus. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, know this much, he is the king who will conquer all his and our enemies. And that if you are against him, you stand in the way of his judgment. But he says, I have mercy. Come, repent and believe that I'm the king. Put your trust in the lion. Of Judah. Friends, exalt Christ, this line of righteousness and justice. As a church, I think we ought to recognize that exalting Christ begins in recognizing him, in seeing him for who he is as the king and judge of the world. And while we exalt him as king and judge of heaven and earth, we do it with joyful reverence because we exalt Christ as the lamb who was slain. This is my second idea here. So we recognize him as the judge, as the lion. And we exalt him because he is the the Lord of heaven and earth. And we repent and acknowledge him and look to him for justice. 
But at the end of the day, we rejoice in reverential awe and wonder as we look at him as the lamb who was slain. I think it would have been natural for John to have expected Aslan to leap out in this vision, right? You know, as they're saying, listen, here's the lion of the tribe of Judah. I think he was going to turn in his vision, right, and look and see there this great lion. But he doesn't, does he? John sees between the throne and the four living creatures standing among the elders a lamb as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. Now, I I think it's easy for us to be caught off guard by the weirdness of this kind of image. Um, I've seen rams. They got big horns. The two. Maybe there's a ram out there with like a, like a growth of an extra horn or something. I don't know, maybe. But this is something else. This is the seven-horned ram or lamb, I'm sorry. And not only that, but there's seven eyes. It's, it's kind of a strange picture, and I think we can get caught off guard by it. But I want us to note that the original audience was steeped in this kind of apocalyptic imagery. So we are not, and so it takes us a little more work to understand it. Um, But the other thing to note is that the apocalyptic imagery, the picture that's presented here, is not meant to be taken literally as if there was an actual lamb with seven horns and seven eyes and that that was Jesus in some weird, strange way. Rather, these were symbolic. They meant something. So the seven horns represent perfect might, perfect power. And we could go back and we could look at all the Old Testament references and come to realize what horn means in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But simply do that research on your own and just just hear this. It means power and strength and authority. And here the seven eyes represent, as best as I can tell, perfect knowledge and understanding that the lamb has. He sees perfectly. It says that his spirits, the seven spirits go out into all the earth. He, in that sense, has perfect, complete understanding and knowledge of everything. He's all-knowing, all-seeing in that sense. And the image of the slain lamb, I think, is pretty clear. If you've been a part of the church, this kind of language isn't all that unfamiliar. It is the picture of the sacrificial lamb, right? John the Baptist, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, when Jesus approaches, what does he say? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the writer of Hebrews, all of them point to this idea that Christ is the sacrifice for sin. He is a propitiation. That is, he is the one who takes upon himself the judgment and curse that we deserve. And so it's declared in the song here in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy, these are the four living creatures. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for... Or another way we might put that is, because you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, 
This worthy judge, this strong lion of Judah, who has all power and knowledge and wisdom and might, who with a single word creates and conquers, offers himself up for you and for me. We are not worthy of such love. And yet, by his blood, by his blood, we are redeemed. We are ransomed. Friends, by the work of Jesus on the cross, we are forgiven. Who is a God like this that would purchase our redemption by his own death? This was the cause for the great angels of heaven. These four living creatures, these 24 elders, these thousands upon thousands of angels to fall down before the lamb who was slain and to worship. And this is the amazing thing. They weren't even recipients of this grace. How much more you and I? How much more, blood-bought sinner, ought we to exalt the Lamb of God who was slain for us? Paul in Colossians 1 says that Christ is preeminent. He is first above all. And the question I think we have to ask ourselves as a church, it's a self-reflective question. Is Christ preeminent? here at CCPC? Do we see our aim, our chief joy, our delight in exalting Jesus, our judge and our savior? Here at CCPC, let us be a people who with joyful reverence come to the lion and the lamb and worship. This brings me to my final thought and maybe a bit more practical as we think about this. Our primary mission. Our primary mission is to exalt Christ. I think it's the primary mission of all creation. I think it's the primary goal of all of God's creatures. Did you notice that? All the creatures in heaven and on earth, everywhere, bow down and worship and exalt Christ. And I think we can, I want to point out that I think we can think about exalting Christ in two ways, and I really want to just focus on one way for the remainder of my time. I think you can think about exalting Christ in everything, right? What does it mean for us to be a people who exalt Christ when we're at work? What does it mean for us to be a people who exalt Christ when we gather together in fellowship? What does it mean that we are people that exalt Christ when we study God's word in Sunday school and we grow together? What does it mean to be a people that exalt Christ as we go out and we serve at Hands on Hartford or we support our missionaries or we send missionaries or we ourselves go off? We We can ask those questions. In every avenue of our life, what does it mean? to exalt Christ. But there's another way we can think about this, and that is formal worship. What are we about as a church? What does it mean for us to gather here on every Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning or whenever we meet and to exalt Christ? 
And I want to focus just on that piece just for a little bit. The first thing I want us to say is let the joyful, reverential exaltation of Jesus be our great aim as a people. There's a couple words in there that I put that very specifically that are part of our mission vision. One is joyful. It is common to think of Presbyterians as dour. Uh, recently watched um, uh, A River Runs Through It. Yes, I have certain themes that I always go to. Um, but in The River Runs Through It, it's the story of a minister, a Presbyterian minister and his sons and his family. And at the beginning, they kind of get a feel for this Presbyterian minister and his sons. And the Presbyterian, this Presbyterian family, they're kind of understated, a little bit dour. But one of the sons, played by a um, oh, famous actor, blanking right now. But anyway, he's full of joy and zeal, but he's also a mess. But anyway, the, the Presbyterians, we, we sometimes struggle with this idea of joy don't want to be insincere. We want to, we want to be carefully guarded. We're also sinners. We've got to focus on the fact that we're broken. This is what we do as Presbyterians. But as we look at this passage and we see the wonder of salvation in the, the lamb who was slain, what happens? The whole host of heaven starts to sing and to praise God and they bring out instruments and they bow down and they worship and they declare the wonders in exuberant ways of the glory of Jesus. We should rejoice in our God, our great God, and be full of joy. We just looked at Philippians, right? Rejoice in the Lord always and again. I say rejoice. But there is a piece in which we are reverential. And you'll note this as we come together and worship. Well, you could go down the street to another church and it might be a little more joyful and we probably could learn a thing or two. Maybe. I don't know. I think we're joyful. But, you know, we all express joy differently. But we also want to highlight the reverence of God, that here is the King of Kings, holy, holy, holy. Like Isaiah entering into the throne room of God, we are undone. Here is the God who is the lion who brings judgment on the earth and woe to anyone who stands in his way. Kiss the son, lest you perish in his way, Psalm 2. There is a sense in which we come into the presence of the living God every time we gather together and worship. Joyful reverence. Well, there's other things that I want us to note from our text as we think about worship here at CCPC. And one of those is that they gather to worship. If we were to go back to the beginning of chapter 4 of Revelation, we're not going to read it, but if we were to go back to the beginning of chapter 4 of Revelation, we would note that this was a gathering of all of the heavenly host around the throne room of God. The angelic hosts gather to worship. I, 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 it's a really basic point, but it means that we gather to worship as a reflection of that heavenly gathering. There will be a day when we all come together around the throne, but now we do this week in and week out 
It was not coincidence that at the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, that he, in six days, by the power of his word, created all things. But on the seventh day, he rested and set it apart as holy. Why? So that the people of God would come to the king. I often use this language when I talk about Genesis 1. That seventh day is a day of royal rest. It's the day we sit in wonder and awe at the feet of our king, the one who created all things and the king who has redeemed us by his blood. And so let's do that week in and week out. Be a people that gathers together. I point this out a little bit because I recognize that this past 16 months, it's been hard for us to gather. Much of the time we could not gather. It's also hard that we also have the option of technological advances by which we can proximate worship in our homes. And we want to provide for shut-ins and those who aren't able to make it an opportunity to at least approximate worship. But it's not the same. It's not like gathering with God's people and fellowship and worship as one body coming together and lifting up praises to him. It's hard to come together and worship because sometimes we find our relationships at church strained. It's hard sometimes to come to worship because we busy ourselves with lesser things that we have built up in our mind as greater things. And I want to encourage you from the text that we are called to exalt Christ together as his people. It's part of our very nature, who we were made to be. Notice that the scripture says that we were redeemed It says here, verse nine: "For you were slain by your, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God." And a little bit later on, and you made them a kingdom of priests to our God. They shall reign over the earth, thinking of the new heavens and the new earth, and even to a degree now. But here's the point: we are called and made and recreated to be. Worshippers, priests, offering up our sacrifices of praise to God. All right, enough on that. Come to worship. That's what we're about. I think it's the highlight of our week. It's what we're doing, exalting Christ. Finally, and I'm going to close here. There's so many things I could say, but I realize we're short on time. How do we encourage our hearts to worship when we are gathered? How do we come together and prepare ourselves to lift up and exalt the name of Christ? I think the first thing is seeing Christ more clearly and seeing ourselves and our need of Christ more clearly. And I believe that the more we see our unworthiness, the more we see Christ as worthy. The more we see that our hope is not in this world, nor in the aims of this world, but as we see our hope is in the lion lamb, the more we see the wonders of his justice and mercy, the more we see his provision for us, the more 
we will hungrily gather and exalt Christ. So what does it look like to encourage our hearts to come together and exalt Christ as a people? It means filling our hearts with Jesus regularly, thinking on him, considering what he's done. It means preparing for worship, coming ready to receive the food, the word of the king. Notice the bowls and the harps in our text. It says here in verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. What were they doing with a harp? They were praising God. This is what we do with our musical instruments. We praise the Lord. They came prepared. (laughs) Maybe he's pressing the text a little bit, but they came ready to worship. They took the harp and those golden bowls full of incense. What are those? Those are the prayers of the saints. They are lifting those prayers up. We are preparing their hearts for worship by prayer and praise to God. They came with prayer and praise to offer to the one who is worthy. And the last thing I want us to see is that we exalt Christ in worship when we are reflective of the breadth of the kingdom as best as we are able. Did you notice, of course, at the the throne, it's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God's gospel goes out to all the world. Christ is proclaimed in all the earth. And what is he doing? He's gathering people from every corner of the earth and to that place where they come and they worship. Well, we're in West Hartford, Connecticut. But we can reflect West Hartford, Connecticut. Rich and poor. Male and female. Slave and free, as the Apostle Paul says. We're all one in Christ. What does that look like for us as we come together and worship? It means we don't make distinctions and we warmly embrace who comes through those doors, however broken and messy they might be and whoever they are. We say, come, sit at the feet of Jesus. Join with us and worship. I'm going to close there and with this thought. There are three songs sung by all the hosts of heaven. They sang each time these words, Worthy are you. Worthy are you to take the scroll. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. And to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever And they all said, amen. What wondrous God we have, a lion lamb who is our God. Let us exalt Christ as his church. Let's pray.